Thank you very much, Eric, for Psalm 65. Thank you, Brother Newell, for leading us in worship this morning and joining the kings of the earth in singing of his ways and bringing him glory. We have the most fantastic subject before us. And for those of you that might have a little bit of a theological bent, let me take a couple of minutes by way of introduction to share another aspect of this study with you. Theology is the science of God. Biology might be the science of life. Theology is the science of God. It's not a study of salvation. That is a word called soteriology when you're studying salvation. But we're studying God himself. We're studying the nature of God. Theologians have written about it for a long time. A theologian is just someone who has spent his time in the science of God. And the word science simply means knowledge. So when we say theology, it's the knowledge of God. It's a wonderful subject. It's a perfectly appropriate, though in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there haven't been, when we look at Scripture, there haven't been a name of a theologian, but there are men like Ezra who was already scribe in the law of God and who would have known everything the Word of God had to say about God. And we want to know, theology should attract certain men. And I'll leave that to your own imagination, what kind of men would be excited about the being and person of God. It's the most wonderful subject there is. How can you ever say that you're like David and you delight in the Lord, but you don't delight in theology, which is the science or the knowledge of God? In looking at my many pages of notes... For this subject, I have been frustrated and disappointed and irritated until yesterday of how to organize them for any future use of them or for my own pleasure. I have to have things organized to mentally get my hands around, my mental hands around all of them. The typical, common, reformed, or historical Theological distinction in God's attributes have been between the communicable and the incommunicable. A communicable attribute is one that he shares with men, and so we're able to have some of it ourselves, though of course not in any degree, compared to him. But we know what it is, and we have it, and we're expected to have it, and we share it from him. The incommunicable are those attributes that he has alone. They're inherent and intrinsic in his nature. Men do not have them and never will have them. And so that's been the basic turning point of how we organize attributes. You know, then you would have omnipotence being an incommunicable attribute because God only has all power, and man never has that privilege. And then we can look at holiness as a communicable attribute because God has it, but he gives it to men. And he expects it of men, and men have their own measure of holiness. But there's more than that to uh, the attributes of God, and I'm thankful, and I want to just share this with you, and for those of you that want to see this, a sketch of where we're headed, and the time finishing should not be much more than the time we've taken to get to this point, if any. These are the, this is a sketch of where we're headed. We have his incommunicable attributes, and today, the Lord willing, we might finish them up. There's ten of them that can easily be identified. They begin with his infinity, or his infinite nature, and we will end today with his immutability. He cannot change. 
And those are ten wonderful things about God. And they're, they're, they're candy and they're gravy to those that love God. Then there are his manifestative attributes, which I'm sorry that the theologians didn't identify this, though they would write little bits about it. His manifestative attributes are some things I've already taught you. He is knowable. That is fantastic attribute of his, that he is knowable and that he is approachable and that he has made that possible for men and not only possible, but he wants that to occur. He has revealed himself by various measures, which are wonderful. He has balances and counterpoints that help define his nature by seeing how much he's manifested of each trait so that we can put a limit on some of them and thus define him more perfectly. He is a singular God, but he is a trinity in persons. All of this is part of his manifestation to us. He's personal. He's revelatory. It's wonderful. Amen. This is this is a category of his attributes that we want to delight in, because if we just have his ten incommunicable attributes, he's a, he's a rather distant, though omnipresent, he's an overwhelming being, and yet... He is so knowable and approachable, personable, and reveals himself to us. He is so personable and revelatory about himself to us. He is incarnational. Now forgive me for using all these forms of words. He's incarnational. Our infinite God became a man and was made flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. God was made flesh. That is just wonderful because that is the image and the likeness of God that we want to gaze on the most, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two categories of his attributes. His, his incommunicable, meaning he can't share them with men. His manifestative, meaning that's how he manifests himself to men. He reveals himself. He's knowable and approachable. Then we have the communicable attributes. His glory, holiness, wrath. Anger, hatred, love, jealousy, humor, and it goes and goes. His goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his tender mercies, his long-suffering, his beauty, his wisdom, his truth. He's glorious. I have to have some... It's too big. Theology is too big of a subject. So I'm telling you, I've been waiting and trusting the Lord to show me how I could break them down so that I could get my mind around them just to enjoy them. And the third category is his communicable ones, and he communicates these things to us. He expects us to be faithful, but he is the great picture of faithfulness himself. And so we can. there's so many things that we want to delight in about him. And then, by the grace of God, and while there's overlap, and you could pick and poke, and anything outside of Scripture you can pick and poke on, and I'll let you pick and poke. But you're not going to pick and poke on Scripture, or at Scripture. And, you know, some of these overlap a little bit, but the fourth category would be relational. How he actually connects and relates to us. And his forgiveness, his chastening, his generosity, his sensitivity, his pity. These are attributes of our God that are outside of incommunicable, manifestative, or communicable. It's how he relates to us. The Lord pities you like a good, wise, loving father pities his children. That is an attribute that belongs somewhere. Lord, thank you so much. He's, he's compatible. 
You say, how in the world is he compatible? Well, you know there's a man that was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin who sits at his right hand. And he has chosen to arrange that so that there is at his right hand an intercession being made for us that's most compatible. He's accountable. Credible. He's accountable. You know, he dares us sometimes to try his word because he's accountable to everything he said about himself. Try me now herewith, saith the Lord. Amen. I will measure up to everything you know about me and everything I've said about me. That is a rough sketch of where we're headed. And like I said, the Lord willing, we should be able to come back to the conclusion of it as about as fast as we've made to get to this point. There's been a lot of foundation laid to this point, and a foundation I believe we need be needed because of some ditches that we might have possibly fallen into in this church. And I hope that Wednesday night was of help to you. It is on the website, and it's been there for several days. You're welcome to look at it again. You're welcome to ask me questions about it. But I don't think there's any questions left. We want to be in the center of the road between the Arminian caricature and distortion of God and the fatalistic, Calvinistic, Catholic caricature or distortion of God. We want to be in the center. And the center is absolute beauty. And it's glorious and wonderful. And I want to continue in studying God's nature now. Lord be with us. He is first of all, and let me review very briefly some points that we've covered, of ten incommunicable attributes. He is infinite. There's nothing else that you know that is infinite, though you can create infinity with repeating decimals and other retarded ideas like that. No one uses an infinite variable like that for any real profit, but God is infinite by any measure that you apply to him, other than the limits put upon him by his own nature. Because remember, we have balance and counterpoints in God's nature. His holiness cannot, his love, excuse me, let me back up, his love cannot extend beyond his holiness. His love cannot overcome or override his holiness. But our God is infinite, and the Bible says he is infinite, and it declares him with that he can't be measured up, he can't be counted up, he's beyond description, and we love that about him. So when we're in the need of wisdom, and we wonder if there's enough wisdom to get us out of a dilemma, we know that there is a source of wisdom that is infinite. When we need power, because we're in a situation where the obstacles seem insurmountable, he has infinite power. We'll be looking at that momentarily. But he's infinite. He's immeasurable. He's undefined in all respects and aspects of his being. He goes way beyond anything that we can measure or put an ending point to other than by his own nature. He does marvelous things without number. The Bible wants us to know without number, not with a high number or a great number, but without number. And I don't want to even turn you to verses because we don't want to get held up way back there at his infinity because we studied it several weeks ago. But God is infinite. There's no limit or determination put on him. He's endless. And when we think of time, which is, of course, his eternality, that he's eternal, he's infinite in time. He has no beginning. He has no end. We can't even comprehend it. Our minds are so finite, they begin to melt down, even as we start to begin the process of thinking of eternity. 
Because we're so finite. Oh, are we finite? We're limited to one place in space and time. We're limited so much in power and strength. Oh, a few meals, a few, a few meals missed and our strength begins to rapidly decline. But you know, the, the, the Bible just mocks such weakness when in Psalm 121, it speaks of our help cometh from the hills because that's where God in that particular Psalm is pictured in the hills. He, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. You know, if I were to keep you from sleep tonight, by tomorrow evening after sleep deprivation, you'd be quite pitiful. Because when it starts approaching 48 hours, we start breaking down rather quickly in our emotional control, our mental processes. But he wants to mock that. He doesn't slumber nor sleep. He's always ready to come to our help. He's infinite. Thank you, Lord. He's incomprehensible. You know, and this should flow from the fact that he's infinite. He's incomprehensible. We can't fully grasp him. And the fact that he's knowable is because he's revealed part of his ways to us. He's revealed his backsides to us. He's incomprehensible. He is and does beyond what we can know. And what we know is only what he's revealed and given us the capacity for knowing. Even in heaven, our knowledge of God is going to be limited. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had to say, but of that day and of that hour... The angels of heaven, yea, even the Son of Man doesn't know. Because God has so many things in His own power and in His own mind, He is incomprehensible. My brethren, if you ever think a situation is hopeless, it's never hopeless with the Lord. It's not even close to being hopeless. While you're thinking hopeless, He's thinking funny. Because it would be so easy for Him, and He will. If you put your trust in Him, He can speak the Word. He doesn't even need to speak the Word. He can think the thought. He doesn't even need to think the thought. Because the thought is part of His eternal counsel. New thoughts don't arise with our God. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. The Bible tells us. If you think religious zeal is vain or wasted, or if you think my brief introduction about theology is vain or wasted... You forget he's past your knowledge. It's an inexhaustible subject that is the most pleasing every page you turn, every verse you read. I can't say that about any other subject I've encountered because I've had to wade wade through pages and chapters that I knew were either insanity or bordered thereupon in order to get to something worthwhile. Anybody ever been in school and felt that way? That you had to, you were looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. But in the Bible, it's a stack of needles everywhere you turn. I can stab with this needle. It doesn't matter where you turn me. I can turn to something and there's glory there. And I'm not going to tell you what I just stabbed upon, but it's in Jeremiah chapter 40. And you'd say, well, that's pretty obscure. And you can look at that verse. And it says, wine and summer fruits very much in the midst of a long description Because there is the power of God that can provide produce, as we had read to us from Psalm 65, in a measure and by ways that we don't understand. And he does it so faithfully and graciously like he did last night. Were you thanking the Lord for the small rain? Then did you thank the Lord for the great rain? We had both at our house. Did you thank the Lord for his still small voice? And then did you thank the Lord for the big one? Now I have a brother that lives just a half mile from me. Sherry cleared the bed by one foot when that one came. I'd been watching the lightning for an hour, brother. It was just little flickerings in the distance. You could just barely hear 
a little rumbling, and then we got what we wait for. Yes. Oh, yes. Praise his name. She was asleep and I wasn't, so I survived it. He's glorious and wonderful. Thank you, Lord. We love knowing you. He's incomprehensible. Whenever you think that you might have figured God out and he's not going to help you in this particular thing, just remember you only know parts of him. You do not know his eternal counsel. He's incomparable. I love that about him and he loves it about him. He says in the Bible, to whom then will you liken me? There is no other. There's none like me. And he says it over and over. That's his solitariness, his supremacy, his transcendency above all other creatures and all other gods. You can look up all the gods of the heathen and they're such a mockery. And all they do is prove the insanity and inferior intelligence and the hallucinations of men. The the Lord just mocks them as you know about the totem pole made from the leftover third of a tree in Isaiah 44. He's independent. I was asked again this morning on the way here by my wife, what's your favorite attribute? You told me all about your new classification of his attributes for which you're so excited. What's your favorite attribute of those two pages of attributes? His independence. I told you last Lord's Day. And you may say, well, that's just kind of twisted, and that's okay. Because the Lord made every snowflake different to appreciate different aspects of Him. Just like every person appreciates different creatures that He's made. And different acts of providence and different judgments. Mine is His independence. And I told you the reason why. Because He doesn't need me. And because I can't add to Him. And because I can't take away from Him. Because He's infinitely happy without me. And that just makes me feel infinitely small. And him infinitely large, and I like it that way. Because he's God, and I'm the opposite of God. It doesn't say he made me a little lower than God. It says he made us a little lower than the angels, who have already been made an infinite distance below God. But I love his independence. I love his name. I am that I am. And we looked at that last Lord's Day. What a name. He could say in his shortened version of it, I am. What being can say that? On the, after Sherry had asked me that, I wanted to further explain to her how I am affected by everyone else. I'm the, the last thing I am is independent. Now, some eggs had been involved in my breakfast this morning. And listen, if someone else doesn't raise those chickens to lay those eggs and gather them and ship them to me, You all know me. I'm not going to be eating eggs. I'm so dependent even for the eggs this morning. And eggs are so cheap. And you can fix them so easily. But we're so dependent. It's my mother and my father. Using the marriage bed that I came from. And you can can either smile about that. Be slightly amused. Or that's where I came from. Totally dependent. And you know sometimes you worry. You go to a doctor and he tells you. You know, you've got a little irregular heart rhythm. He thinks. He's not sure, because they're not sure about anything, really. But you know what? And you go home worried. And you're forgetting that there's about 1,000, or is it 1 million, or is it 1,000 million, or is it 1,000 million million other processes going on in your body on which you depend But they just pointed out one for you to think about. Because you're so dependent. 
But he's keeping all those processes going. By him, all things consist. All things repel by the word of his power. He's independent. We're dependent. No one's upholding him. No one helps him. No one delivers him. No one made him what he is. No one sustains him or preserves him. He is what he is from eternity. He's independent. I am that I am. This is my name and my memorial forever. It's good enough for me. His name, Jehovah. And like I mentioned to you, if you use that word Jehovah very often, it's a shame that Christians are going to ask you if you're a Jehovah's Witness because that name is never used in their pulpits. That just blows my mind. What is the name of our God? God. Oh, what's the name of our president? President. Oh, you're helpful. You're really intimate with the affairs of our nation. What is the name of our God? Jehovah. Or Almighty God. Or God Almighty. Or the everlasting God. Or the God of all hope. I mean, I'll let you degenerate yourself down to those because his real name, the memorial forever, which he said was his name when he was pressed for a name that would impress his people and his church, is Jehovah. And Jehovah means I am that I am. That's where it came from. We wouldn't even have that word without I am that I am being pointed up with vowels to be pronounced as Jehovah. He's independent. No Pope of Rome. No political power. Not the devil himself can influence my God. My God is my God. And if my God says he loves me, they cannot influence that love. I appreciate someone yesterday who comforted me by saying they remembered that use of Romans 8, 38 and 39, or maybe it was Friday. The mind gets a little clouded sometimes with lots of conversations. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate me from from us, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because he's independent of all those things. What if he was dependent on even one of them? What if even one of them could influence him? We'd be in trouble, but we're not in trouble. We are safe as can be. His invisibility. Now, I was hoping just for the sheer pleasure of preaching and hearing that some of you may have thought last Lord's Day when I said the word invisibility, what's he going to get out of that? Well, it's in the Bible. Now, you know it's there, right? Because I showed you. 1 Timothy 1.17 is one place to start. Now, under the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible. Invisible. There it is. So we know it's an attribute of God that he wants us to know about. But you know, when we thought about it a little bit, it's pretty wonderful. And when we think of all the nations and men that have spent their lives in idolatry, it's pretty condemning, isn't it? I hope you found that very enlightening, that God did not reveal himself to us visually. He revealed himself to us audibly through words that we either read or we hear. Very interesting. A super point. And I work this point slick in our document against Mel Gibson's movie of eight years ago, The Passion of the Christ, his Roman Catholic catechism that he sent out. Remember remember how all the uh, fundamentalists got all worked up about it, that there's going to be one billion people saved? Nobody got saved. The world's got worse in the last eight years. It was a total farce. Mel Gibson 
is about as close to being a Christian as Judas Iscariot on his worst day. And yet, James Dobson and others sat down with Mel for Mel to teach them about Jesus? Oh, yes. Mel got up there and said there was so much power in the blood of Christ. This is in front of 5,000 pastors in the southwest of our country in early, in early 2004. If, God, if Jesus were just to prick his finger and let out one drop, it could save all men. Now, you may sing, There is Power in the Blood, that way. That's a song that I used to sing growing up. But that isn't what the Bible says. Right. The, only, the only way that his blood has any power in it is because it ran out and it took his life. It's him laying down his life for us. Right. So, you know, Mel had 90 minutes of blood and gore in Latin to tell you what kind of a Catholic he was. In that document that we wrote and that we invested heavily in and that brought us a little sister in the back of this auditorium, I worked that point slick that God is not revealed by pictures. He's revealed by words. And Catholics have rejected that for all their statutes, images, likenesses, paintings, stained glass, and so forth. Oh, I I love that point. I, I enjoyed that so much. Man's always been so stupid. I saw you amused last Lord's Day that he's always desired a picture book over reading from the beginning. And it's the truth. They would rather have a picture. They'd rather go in mindlessly and fall down before some statue rather than having something read to them where they need to think and create a word picture. But the word picture is very different from the visual picture, isn't it? When Moses heard the word picture of God, what did he hear? Turn to your first passage of Scripture this morning. It's Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. I hope everything I've said is in agreement with Scripture already and a review of them and many of them at that. I want to commend the men and the women for the blogs that they've been adding to. I was told this morning on the attribute of omnipotent that the women have contributed 175 verses. I'm not going to deal very long with omnipotence. Because you can deal with that one yourselves. You know, if we were to deal with omnipotence in any degree of detail, how long would we be here? Isn't it in every chapter of the Bible the power of God, that he has all power? So we're just going to mention some of its main declarations in the Word of God. But I commend you women for having 175 verses on the blog about the omnipotence or the power of God. Here's what God looks like. When Moses said in Exodus 33 and verse 18... I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God said, I will show you my backsides. And I'll put my hand over you to protect you from even that. And the backsides are revealed to him in chapter 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and showed the name of the Lord. Does it say that in your Bibles? It says, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is a huge theological difference. There is no vision or view of God but by words. Huge. If you want to know God. The science of God is not found under a microscope. It's found through a speaker. And the Lord passed by before him. And proclaimed, there it is again, proclaiming 
is to enunciate or to verbally express or declare something. The Lord. Not a picture. A word. Notice that it's in all caps. Did Moses already know the name? Yes. Was he hearing it again? Yes. Does he remember the burning bush? Yes. That burning bush, what did the Lord say to him out of the burning bush? Get the shoes off your feet because you are standing on holy ground. Says he fled from the bush because it didn't make sense to him that it was burning, but it wasn't burned. Glory. Everywhere you go in the Bible, this great and glorious God and little pitiful Moses said, well, if I go back and speak to my people, they're not going to believe that you sent me. Oh, you poor boy. Throw your rod down. And he threw it down. He ran away from his rod. The Lord had to call him back. It's just your rod. It's wiggling. It's a snake. It's a serpent. Take it up by its tail. Immediately a rod. Put your hand inside your coat. Leprosy is one ugly thing to look at. He pulled it out and it was leprous. Put it back in. And the Lord said, I hope those two are sufficient because I'll give you a third. If you get down there and they don't believe the first two, if they don't believe the first one, they should believe the second one. But if they don't believe the first two, then just take some water from any source, take it from a river, and pour it upon the ground, and it will be turn, it'll turn into blood. All these evidences from our great God to comfort Moses to go be a preacher when he didn't want to be a preacher. And you know it got worse after that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, the Lord was angry with him. And said, okay, I've raised up Aaron. He'll do your talking for you, poor boy. But if you have a hair lip, it's because I created the hair lip. And you don't. And you're going to go. Then the Lord tried to kill him. Because he hadn't circumcised Gershom. And Zipporah had to do it. I was so convicted by that passage this week about seeing the burning bush and being the first man on this planet, to ever hear the words, I am that I am, and then to be that resistant to being his messenger. That having that many questions that he wanted God to answer as to how it was going to work out down there in Egypt, and then not having circumcised his son. What I want to say to you is, let's make sure that we are very willing to do anything he wants us to do, and that we have done all that he's already commanded us to do. Lest we be like Moses and the Lord meets us in an inn on your next vacation and tries to kill you. You say, how can the Lord try to kill you? It would not be a pleasant experience. You know he could kill you in a second. But he trying to kill you is worse than killing you. Killing you is only going to last a second or less. But trying to kill you could last a while and bring some great fear. But anyway, here we are, back to Exodus 34. I want you to see a vision of God. <clears throat> but you've got to see it through your ears. Verse 6, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord! The Lord God! Not just any God, not just God, the Lord God! Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. There's a vision of God. He's invisible. So he reveals himself to us by words, and we have all these words. We have these wonderful words. Aren't those wonderful words in verses 6 and 7? Keeping mercy for thousands? Keeping mercy. Can't you just focus on every single one of those words and delight in the beautiful vision that you're having of God, but it's entering through your ears? Because God knows. First of all, he's infinitely beyond our ability to comprehend visually. But God knows if he ever gave us an image, we'd be worshiping a statue. We'd make something out of stone or wood and we'd worship it. That's why he had to bury Moses because they'd have been worshiping Moses' body. Do you know what they did with the brazen serpent for another seven or eight hundred years? The brass serpent Moses made. Hezekiah had to destroy it. Nahushtan. It's a thing of brass. There's a picture of God. He's invisible. Praise his glorious name. No man can tell you even a hint of what he might look like. We reject anything even close to images or likenesses of God. We love his more sure word. It's better than hearing Jesus Christ talking to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration when they're all glorified in front of the apostles. The the Bible is still better. All these things just come together. It's wonderful. Thank you, Lord. He's intelligent, meaning he's omniscient. There's that science word again, meaning knowledge. He has all knowledge. And we ended on that last Lord's Day. What a wonderful thing it is to, re- to realize that God knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts before they come out of your tongue and can be heard audibly. He knows you when you were in your mother's womb. He knew how you were going to be formed before you were formed because he had it written in his book. And in the process of the nine months of gestation, you were formed and your members were formed exactly as he had them written down, though they were not at that point in time. Psalm 139, it's just glorious. He knows that about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And it varies from day to day, especially on some of us. And he still knows the number. And it's just wonderful. And you, you say, I don't know him. And, and how does he know me? No one else knows anything like that about you. I can promise you no one in here knew how you were being formed or what you were going to look like when you were in your mother's womb. That's why we have such a thing called ultrasound. That is why we have looking when it comes out to see what it is. Because we don't even know the biggest difference between two people, male or female, until it's born. Let alone all the features of how long the fingers are going to be. What color the hair, the color of the eyes, the proportion of the body, the coordination of the body, the intellectual ability of the mind, all those things are in God's book. He knows you so well. Before you ever knew him, before you ever knew you, he still knows you a whole lot better than you know you. Does he have all your your tears in a bottle? Does he have all your wanderings in his book? Is it in one verse? Do you know how to find it and where to go? What book of the Bible would you start in? Psalm 56. Look at it with me. This is where we were ending up. What glorious intelligence. The Bible says his knowledge of everything about us is too wonderful and too high. We cannot comprehend. We cannot attain to it. You know his knowledge of you is unique. For what he knows, he is always known without learning. 
if anyone else knows you or comes to know you, it's because they acquired that knowledge or learned it. He's always known it. He doesn't learn. Look at Psalm 56 and verse 8. Now, if you want to call yourself a melancholy, whatever that means, you introverted, overly thinking, worrying, fearful person, I just gave you a definition for it, then you need a verse like this, to lay hold of in your hand and never let it go. Thou tellest my wanderings. That doesn't mean he goes around and tells us about you, that you're using the word tell there the wrong way. That old English word tell is to count. Thou countest my wanderings. You know every time I've wandered, you count them up. You know them all. You have the right number. You have my number. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? God's book about each of your life where he notes down his diary for you. He puts down your wanderings. He puts down your tears. He doesn't miss a single one. He counts them. And your tears are in his bottle. And you're in his book. This is where you ought to put your comfort. Because as a child of God, as I tried to teach on Wednesday evening, God has never hated you. God has never seen you as a sinner. Because before He chose to create our first parents, He chose to put you in Christ Jesus. He's always viewed you in Christ. And so this is the kind of verse you want to remember about Him. Not the verses that are describing the wicked and His eternal judgment of them. And the more you feed yourself in the Word of God and find these little jewels in the Bible, what great comfort they can be for a woman that thinks to herself, no one knows how much I hurt, or for a man. Have these words ever been spoken, either audibly or in a person's heart? No one knows how much I hurt. No one else knows how difficult this is. No one knows how painful this is. No one knows how disappointed I am. Oh, there is someone that knows. He counts your wanderings. He puts your tears in his bottle. And they, your tears and or your wanderings, are in his book. He knows all about it. Put your trust in him and cast yourself upon him. Verse 9, when I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. And I can't go on because it's just going to keep getting better. It's the Word of God. Amen. This is the stuff you ought to feed your soul with. He knows all about you. It's so wonderful our prayers don't inform Him. For He already knows our needs. Brother Eric this morning mentioned Hagar in Genesis 16. There's a sermon on our website entitled, Thou God Seest Me. It's very comforting. I enjoy it very much. Be sure your sin will find you out as another aspect of God's omniscience or his knowing all things. You know, his omniscience should convict you about secret sins because the Bible tells you, be sure your sin will find you out. The Bible says God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. Hebrews 4 says that we're naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do and that he knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. That's pretty secret. We think we're hiding it from others, but the Lord knows. And that is one side of his omniscience. However, 
the child of God should recognize that God knew that everything that he sees in the secret faults of your heart and mind, he knew that before he chose you in Christ. He knew that's what you were going to be. He knew that was the nature he was going to give you. And like as a father pitieth his children, he knows your frame, he knows you're weak, he knows you have failures. He never looks at them the way he does the wicked. The worst that he ever shows himself towards you is to withdraw his smiling countenance and bring a little bit of affliction and chastening into your life in order to get you back into fellowship with him because he wants that fellowship with you. He is not trying to hurt you for any pleasure in himself. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he wants the wicked to turn from his wicked way and repent. He chastens you for your profit. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm sorry I went so long as I did on Wednesday night, but I promise you I could have gone longer. Hebrews chapter 12. When troubles are in your life, whether they're emotional troubles inside, some of those are, many of those could be your own fault. But when you've got troubles in your life and it's on the outside, you know that God has withdrawn some of His blessing from you for a while, or He's brought some chastening into your physical body, into your finances, into your family. When He does that, this is what we need to remember. Because He's, this is very different from the way He looks at and views and treats the wicked. And very different isn't even, doesn't even do justice to it. They're opposites. And the whole Bible is filled with that contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And how one is the delight of God and the other is an abomination to him. But look at verse 5. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. There is a fatherly piece of advice in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, for your comfort when bad things are in your life. But you forget it. And I'm speaking right now to you melancholies. You forget it. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. It was Solomon to his son, my son. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Don't resent or be frustrated by negative events in your life, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Don't faint when God, in a little bit of thunder or a little bit of power or a little bit of intimidation or a little bit of overwhelming circumstances comes into your life. Don't faint. This is fatherly advice from God through Solomon. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and again I refer to Psalm 65 and its explication or explanation, both mean the same thing. Today, there was mention made of that fact, of the Lord chastening, and not to resent it. And to look at his care for his children. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. That is so wonderful, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. It's love that causes God to do that to you. And even though the word scourge is used, and the word scourge there in the middle of verse 6 is a horrific word. When you go look up the definition of the whip that is called a scourge, He does that to every son. If ye endure chastening, if you have these negative events in your life, when you've believed on Christ, God dealeth with you as with sons. How do you know whether you've believed on Christ enough or not? If you believe on Christ, it is enough. Eric explained, no man 
can come to me except my Father, which is in heaven, draw him. That coming to Christ is believing on him. And all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise, no wise, there is no way, there is no effort, no condition, no circumstance, no failure on your part that will cause Jesus Christ to cast you out. You say, but there are lots of people that believe that are going to end up in hell. They don't really believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Find me the passage of Scripture that shows a believer going to hell. You say, Matthew 7. There is not a believer in Matthew 7, the second half of that chapter. Show me one. They say, Lord, Lord. Their belief is not in the Lord. Their belief is in themselves. Their belief is in their good works. And they think God is unfair to even be thinking about casting them into hell because of their good works. If you've, you've never thought that way, I speak to the vast majority of you. How about John chapter 8 and verse 30 and 31 where it says some believed on him, but Jesus knew their hearts that they weren't real believers. Okay, if Jesus said this to you, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, how would you respond to that statement by Jesus Christ? I speak for the vast majority of you in this audience. You would say, yea, Lord. I love your truth. And thank you for showing me your truth. And I am not worthy of the least of all the truth and all the favors that you have shown me. Is that how you would respond if Jesus said personally to you, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? Do you know what they said? We've never been in bondage to any man. What in the world are you talking about? And they tried to kill him. Why do you think there's this fine line between the righteous and the wicked? It's a great chasm. You would never talk to Jesus Christ that way. You've never thought those kind of thoughts. If you've believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your only Savior from sin, you're his child. He's drawn you to him. You're fulfilling John 6. Thank you, Eric. Tag team. It's the way it's supposed to be in the church of God. All of us speaking the same thing toward the same end. So that wherever anyone turns, they have to hear the same thing. It's so simple. The thief. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You say, well, that's not enough faith. That's just not enough. That's because your ways are way down there and his ways and thoughts are way up there. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not purgatory, where I'll try to refine you and get a little more faith out of you before I let you into paradise. The Catholics would say, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. All of that was said for you to appreciate being a son. So whenever these negative events come into your life, it's said in verse 5, don't despise them. It's said in verse 5, don't faint because of them. Because they're proof of God's love to you, verse 6. And verse 7, because they're happening in your life, it's proof that you're his child. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? I mean a good father, the perfect father. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. We didn't run away from home. Shall we? This is a good father. Right. Even in the flesh. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Shouldn't we just humbly take his chastening and affliction and know that in faithfulness he's afflicted us to make us better? 
For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Of course it doesn't seem to be joyous. If God loves me, why am I not happy? Because you've sinned, and because he's proving that he loves you. If he just buried you in goodness and kindness and prosperity and pleasure all the days of your life, you'd forget him, because Israel's the great proof of that. Jeshu run waxed fat and kicked. Prosperity does not lead us to faith or holiness. Deprivation leads us to faith and holiness. Look at the lives of the martyrs. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous in verse 11, but grievous. Of course it's grievous. I've been grieved. Trust me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And there's the key for all of you right there. The last two words, exercised thereby. How does it exercise you? The exercise is given in verse 12 and what effect it should have on you. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. You get up. Get up and do what you're supposed to do today and do it cheerfully and joyfully in a straight path to please God and the chastening rod will be lifted. Elihu tried to tell Job that, that your your straightness, your 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 meager fare, the fact that you've been stripped to nothing would be eliminated. You'd be fat again if you would just humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. All of this is to talk about God knows everything. He's chastening you. He knows when you're in pain. He knows when it's grieving you. But he's grieving you for your profit and his glory because he's trying to make you holier so that you can be closer to him. It's proof that he loves you. It's proof of your sonship. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you haven't gone around on a regular, constant basis in sincerity, cursing him in your heart, like those in John 8 or those in Matthew chapter 7, why do you keep going to those passages? Right. I, want to, I want to share a little aspect with you about omniscience. Look at Hebrews. Since you're in Hebrews, let's just go to Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Remember, Wednesday night, one of my main points was to take Proverbs 15.3 and ask how you use the verse, how you view the verse. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. You know, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? If, if you just believe what I read from Hebrews 12, you love that he sees both. Because when he sees the evil, he's going to chasten you, and he chastens you for your profit that you can be closer to him and live a more holy and righteous life, even when he sees the evil. Never is he seeing the evil to hold it against you in the day of judgment and then throw you out of his sight, because he has chosen you in Christ from the very beginning and has never seen you as evil in that legal sense of the word, ever. The wicked he has never seen righteous, even on their very best day, when they write a check for $1,000 to United Nations, hoping that it will move their boss to promote them in the next year. The plowing of the wicked is sin in the sight of God. The book of Proverbs teaches that. This is so comforting. But I asked you about Proverbs 15.3. How do you view the verse? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. It should convict us not to sin when we have some negative events come into our lives and we know we have secret sins. We should say to ourselves and to the Lord, Lord, I know that nothing is hid from thee and thou art chastening me for my secret sins. 
And every act of service we do, he sees that as well and sanctifies it. It's all beautiful. Hebrews 6.10 about his omniscience. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Everyone else in your life may be unrighteous to forget and work your to forget your work and labor of love, but not God. His omniscience is such that everything he sees, he never forgets. Are there some things, though, that he does forget? Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Do you know what's going to happen when you get to heaven? When it comes right down to the crucial issue? Matthew 25 describes it in graphic detail. He's going to turn to those on his right hand and say, Blessed of ye of my Father, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the righteous are going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? No. The righteous never talk like that. The righteous will say, Lord, when did we ever feed you, give you drink, clothe you, or visit you in prison? And he'll say, in that you didn't want to one of these, the least of these, my brethren. Wonderful. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. His omniscience is bound by his righteousness, which means he remembers every good thing you've done and he forgets every evil thing you done, have, have done because his son Jesus paid for all of them, which ye have showed toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. So it's so precious. There's so many passages like that. Immortality. Our God is immortal. Look at 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17. Remember, these are the ten incommunicable attributes of our glorious God. He can't communicate these to us in the sense that He has them or even close. Though He will give us eternal life, and we shall live forever and never die. We shall die once. In our bodies. First Timothy 1.17. Now unto the king, eternal. Immortal. You know, both of those words are, if there's shades of difference, they're very slight. Describing the fact that he doesn't have a beginning or an ending and he doesn't die. It's impossible for us to comprehend an eternal being. Because we measure existence by successive units of time. Requiring a beginning and ending points of reference. As an infinite spirit, God isn't bound the way we are by time, as are all his creatures. Look at chapter 6 of the same book, 1 Timothy 6, which makes mention of the same attribute. These are words that the Lord wants us to know. He's immortal. 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality. The kind of immortality God has, he's the only one that's got it. And then dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, that's his invisibility, whom no man hath seen nor can see. Invisibility, to whom be honor and power everlasting, that is his infinite glory and omnipotence. Amen. In the middle of Paul's, Paul's letter to Timothy, and you should rejoice in these things. Look at Psalm 104 with me. Psalm 104, God is immortal. He's eternal. He's forever. We never have that with anything else we own. Your favorite car, 
grew old and died. Your favorite everything, your favorite parent, your favorite grandparent grows old and dies. Your favorite roses you were ever given grow old and die. But not God, not our Lord. Psalm 104 and verse 31, The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever because He is immortal. And He's unchanging. He's eternal. Look at Deuteronomy 32 and verse 40, where He raises His hand to heaven and swears. God doesn't have a hand, and He's already in heaven, but it's terminology for us to understand the power of this statement. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 40, For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. I am that I am, and I live forever. I am immortal. Immortality means you can't die. If you're mortal, or you're feeling your mortality, you can die, or you are having the first thoughts or the feelings of dying, but not God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Can you imagine such a description about a being? That's our God. And you say, well, how could He ever arrive at this point in time if He was eternal? Well, take it up with Him. See if your glorified mind can comprehend it because your unglorified mind can't. And my unglorified lips can't explain it. But I just believe it, and I love the sound of the words because when it comes to their sense, I can't say more than He's eternal and immutable and immortal. From everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Wow. That is Psalm 90. His immortality may be described as an infinite number of years in Job 36 and 26. That He inhabits eternity. That He's the former of all things. That His goings have been of old. Who was and is and is to come. And living forever and ever. Revelation 4.9. How can it help us to know about His immortality? Every source of help, every source of strength in your life will end, but not God. Look at Deuteronomy 33, since you're so close at hand. Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help. Do you know that you have someone that rides upon the heaven in your help? You were hoping someone would come for you in an ambulance? And in His excellency on the sky, the eternal God is thy refuge. The eternal God is thy refuge. What's a refuge? A place to go hide and be safe. And underneath are what kind of arms? The everlasting arms. You know, I've heard little girls say, I loved it when my father would reach out and take my hand. I loved it when my father's arm was around me because I felt so secure. Forget your father. Listen, the man would have trouble single arm curling 20 pounds very many times. And anybody wants to mock that, meet me tomorrow and I'll tell you how few times you can curl 20 pounds with one arm. Because the point is this. There are underneath everlasting arms. That's just an incredible thought. Underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. No matter, you know what the enemy that was? Seven nations of Canaan. This is, these are Moses' final words. 
You're going to take that land, children. Your parents wouldn't do it, but the everlasting God is with you. And underneath of the everlasting arms, there's 70 cities built up and walled to heaven. In that place, there's giants. There's the Anakim in there. They are armed for war. They've been trained for war. They have been in wars. You people are nothing. Your children that have wandered for 40 years in the desert, go in and destroy them. Because who's with you? Underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God is thy refuge. And he rides upon the heaven in thy help. He's glorious. He's immortal. He doesn't change. He doesn't die. Every source of strength you have. That's why it says in Isaiah 26, Put your trust in the Lord Jehovah. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Because I am that I am is the name Jehovah. Your flesh and your heart will fail you, but God can be your strength forever if He is your portion. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Anything arising in time that troubles you does not at all alarm a timeless Jehovah because He is immortal and He is eternal. Since God is King forever and ever, look at Psalm 10 and verse 16 if you want to know if those... If that combination of words is in the Bible, Psalm 10 and verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. If the Lord is king forever and ever, who can arise to hurt you? A worse president than we have? From that standpoint, who cares who we get as the next president? The Lord is king forever and ever. And it's in that immortality that we trust and that he tells us to trust. Everything you ever see him do or everything everything and anything that he ever does is merely the result of his eternal counsel. You know, as we close out this sermon and this subject of immortality, you you have to stop. I live forever. The Lord is king forever and ever. Immortal, eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. 